0: Hello everyone, welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips.
1: Two, one,
0: we're live. Hi Frank, how are you doing? What's up? Hi Noah, hi Julia Salada. This is uh, Frank Forza, another episode of Everyman BJJ video podcast and today they- Noah and I are joined by Julia Salata. Julia, whenever I say the name, I love that it has. on It has. Like I call them the Power A's. You got the the the, the Julia. You got the Salata. You got a whole lot of whole lot of lot a lot of A's in that. In that there's
2: name. a lot of Salata, as people like to say. Sometimes, for sure, it yeah, rolls off the tongue. right
0: A lot mm-hmm. of Salata. I like it. um So. This is, this has been Noah, Julia, this has been an exercise in persistence. We've showed a lot of persistence to make this happen because whenever I want to interview, have a conversation with Julia, who's fantastic. Everything technological that can go wrong does go wrong. We've wasted, we've probably wasted two hours just trying to get Julia on video. We had a great podcast. We did an audio podcast, which is out there. Uh, On one of one of the podcasts we shot Julia that I really enjoyed and now fingers crossed uh, The technology will hold up and we're gonna have a great episode. So um, For those who don't know Julia Julia is has been a member of USA uh, The the USA wrestling team. She finished second place at the US um, USA world trials a few years back. She is the assistant coach at King University in Tennessee a very good women's program. And one thing I really love about it, Julie, there's a lot of other things too. You're an emerging podcaster in your own right. I think you're gonna do some much bigger and better things. You're only 27 years old. You're gonna do much bigger and better things. People don't know who you are now. They're probably gonna know who you are in four, five, six years. So I'm happy to, to be there on the front lines. By the way, there's this, there's this Connor McGregor impersonator, Marcus Deegan, he lives in Vegas. So this guy's getting publicity in British newspapers and, you know, UFC's interviewing him. I I had him first. I had him, I was walking around Whole Foods and this guy's walking around looking like Connor McGregor's dad. So I just chatted him up, shot an interview with him and was the first person there, hey dude, you look like Connor McGregor, Conor McGregor impersonator, blah, 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 blah. That guy's everywhere now. Like Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor has the guy like, you know, when they go to the VIP club and they're in the clubs and the guy parties with Connor McGregor now, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, I had the guy first. I feel like that with Julia. I feel like, hey, I kind of saw it in Julia, the, the the talent, the potential as a personality, not just as a wrestler. And I see it in you, and I and I know that good things are coming. So we have Julia. Julia, let's go for people who don't know you. We like to we like to have universal themes. We're talking about every man and every woman, even though we're named every man. We're we're looking at. We're universal, we like to reach the mainstream too, not just the diehards. And you are unique for among other reasons. You were training with the boys, training with the guys, when, you know, back when there weren't a lot of women on those mats. In fact, you and I have talked about only girl on the mat when you started in high school. Take us back to Michigan, your teenage years, why you got started in wrestling, very brave move, and what it was like to be The
2: only girl in the back. So I was always a little bit of a tomboy. Um, I grew up, I was an only child actually, but um, everyone in my neighborhood were all guys growing up. Um, And that's just kind of who I gravitated to. You know, I was in the backyard playing tackle football and climbing trees and making tree forts, uh, playing street hockey. And, you know, I was kind of like, you know, one of the guys in that sense. I was used to kind of getting dirty and, you know, just, that's how I was. I was always like a little, like, Craphead, You know, I, I just had a tenacity about me. Um, ended up playing hockey, softball, every sport under the sun. And throughout those years, I also kind of developed an affinity for professional wrestling. Um, like WWE, I was a huge fan of the Undertaker, John Cena, Kane. And I loved it i mean I, I watched raw and smackdown every week and you know i watched wrestlemania every year it was always right around my birthday like usually sometimes on my birthday sometimes a day or two off so that was like i look for my birthday but i also looked forward to wrestlemania in april um and at the end of my eighth grade year um, they decided to start a middle school wrestling program they never had done it before in my district and i came home for this flyer i was like mom i want to wrestle it's six weeks i have time to squeeze it in before my next sports season starts like i want to do it and she's like julia like you know, that's not the wrestling you watch on TV, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But like, I've always loved that. I want to give it a try. Again, I was in the backyard wrestling with the guys in my neighborhood. And, and I was like, I just want to give it a shot. So she's like, all right, cool, fine. Do what you want. Have fun. Um, so I show up to middle school wrestling the first day, only girl in the room. And that wasn't super unfamiliar for me. Because again, grew up with all guys was used to, you know, mixing it up with them. And the coach was like, I have no problem with it as long as you're here to train and get better i'm like yeah that's that's all i want to do i just want to learn this sport so i did uh and at the end of the six weeks they had the middle school state championship with the five middle schools in our district and i ended up winning that tournament against all guys and one of the kids I beat, actually in the semifinals, was like slated to be the varsity starter at his high school the next year. He'd already been wrestling uh, for club for years. And, and, and when I was the one, one I was the only one in the gym. Me, be, and I immediately had everybody everybody in everybody in um, and And uh, I was still pretty raw. So pretty I mean, raw. wrestling for all of six weeks. But it was enough to get the attention of the coach at the high school that I was going to be attending. Which is actually where that tournament was held, at my future high school. So he approached my parents and said, hey, you know, I watched your daughter wrestle today. Uh, I've never had a girl on the team, but I'd love for her to come out and wrestle in high school next year. Um, at the time, I didn't know if, if I was going to pursue it further. Again, I played a million sports, but it, I thought it was really big of him to be like, to approach my parents too and say, hey, like, not only do I do I think that, well, not only should you welcome, I want her to come out. I want her to be on this team. And it, I was like, all right, cool. Sounds good. So high school rolled around ended up joining the wrestling team, um, and things just kind of progressed from there. I I improved pretty quickly. Uh, I won my first national title against girls by the end of my sophomore year, so uh, that just kind of took me down a path to get to where I am today.
0: What was your, you know, you mentioned tenacity. You obviously had a mindset, you had a boldness, you had a bravery to be out there, and not. it seems like you didn't even give it a second thought. It was like, I'm just going to I'm just going to wrestle guys, not a big deal, it's what I've been doing in the backyard anyway. So you had that, uh, that audacity, you had the tenacity. What were your best qualities? You were able to compete with a lot of the guys. What were your best physical qualities? Are you, were you just extraordinarily strong for a woman? Were you fast? What were some of the physical attributes, because not every woman has those physical attributes. You had some of the intangibles. What were some of the physical attributes that made you be able to keep up with a lot of the guys?
2: I think first and foremost, I just had a really natural knack for wrestling, which I've now learned is actually a knack for combat sports in general. But um, I wasn't, I mean, I was strong for a girl, but it wasn't like I was like overly freakishly strong. Um, I was quick, but I wasn't like lightning fast with everything that I did. I think I just was was really well-rounded. Um, I had really good hips, which in wrestling is super important, both defensively, offensively, understanding position and leverage. And I just kind of had these natural feels that kind of, helped me out a lot of situations. And what I lacked in technical knowledge those first couple of years, I was kind of able to compensate for and just natural feel and understanding position. Um, And I really, as soon as I started wrestling, even by the end of like that six week middle school period, I became a real student of the sport. Like I just couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I was watching, you know, big 10 dual meets on TV and, and, you know, flow wrestling and stuff didn't exist then. But anytime I could get my hands in kind of wrestling, I I was watching it and learning and studying it. Um, and I just kind of became a nerd and, and just really embraced all aspects of the sport. And I would apply things too. I wasn't just watching it and being like, "Wow, these guys are so good." I was like, "Huh, he did that when he shot a single. Leg. Let me try that." And I was willing to try it in practice. So I think just kind of my desire to learn more, and like I said, just be a student of the sport, combined with a natural feel, is why I improved so quickly. Um, I think the other thing is I just kind of had a natural chip on my shoulder. Uh, being the only girl in the room, you kind of have to have a little bit of an attitude and a little bit of an edge about you. Uh, If you go in there and you're timid, I mean, you're going to get walked all over, especially being the only girl in the room. You have to earn the respect of those guys around you and those coaches. And I had to kind of like persevere through some things, but it was never something that I I was cognizant about like, Oh, I need to go in there with an edge today. It was just something I've always had. Um, So I I think a combination of those things is why I really started excelling kind of early on. Um, and then, you know, towards my junior and senior year, I started to develop, you know, some kind of like technique and understanding that, like, I am a little bit quick. I should do some more low singles, or I do have good hips. Maybe I can approach some of these matches more defensively and force bad shots and that kind of a thing. And actually, kind of started to have um, a little bit of game planning in my wrestling, especially if I watched film in advance on an opponent, that kind of a thing. But I think early on, just um, a natural propensity for grappling and uh, just being being a nerd, being a nerd of the sport.
0: Yeah. Back in, in many years ago, when I was in college, I did coach at a high school. And one of my athletes, I got to coach, I had a female athlete, and she was the only one on the team. And she was probably about a buck, 115 pounds, very quiet, very soft spoken, very girly, right? Very feminine, not not very muscular. And it was one of those, okay, let's see how long. I mean, I, I loved having her on the team. She was a hard worker, she was tough as nails, but you're still interested, like, how long is she going to stick around are the guys going to be trying to hurt her what are their egos like you know when she starts beating some of them so i have familiarity coaching athletes i coach jiu-jitsu uh female athletes what was the enjoyability so I, so what i'm saying with that is i really appreciate your perspective i know it's sort of that that walk that 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 prism you've had it's a very unique prism what was some of the enjoyability what What did you love, especially during those high school formative years when you fell in love with the sport, what was the real enjoyability and the fulfillment that came from being, because a lot of, a lot of women wouldn't find that fulfilling or a good time or enjoyable. A lot of people wouldn't get it. What kept you coming back? What was like, wow, this is enjoyable. I'm falling in love with this.
2: I think it's the fact that you're presented with a new challenge in wrestling literally every single day. I mean, even now I've been doing the sport for almost 15 years and I still find a new challenge every day. Um, and like, you know, like I said, I was always kind of a natural athlete. Like I could pick up any sport pretty quickly. Um, but it always felt like you know, even at a younger age, like I I was really into softball and hockey, like there's a point where it's just like you're improving little skills here and there. I mean, once you understand the concept of the sport, like in hockey, you have to have stick handling. In softball, you have to have hand eye coordination when batting or you know, you, you can nitpick at little things, but there's only, only so many core skills within those sports. With wrestling, there is such a, a wide array of things you have to be good at. And then within that those couple of things there's so many nuances like even looking at leg defense you think like oh okay sprawl okay get behind you're done but like there's like how do you defend a single leg how do you limp knee out how do you defend a low single how do you defend a high single how do you defend a double wow i don't know anything at all about this sport um and so it just kind of kept me coming back every single day and being able to to get a new challenge overcome it okay, cool. What's the next challenge? Overcome it. Okay, cool. And it, you can always just really tell where you're at. I mean, then you, cause you apply it right away in live wrestling. Um, so you can like make an adjustment one day, see if it works that day in practice, then come back the next day and see if you got better at it. And it's just very, yeah. you can have tangible ways of, of seeing improvement. And, and I really like that. Um, and I also kind of like being bad at things because it means I have something to work on. And there was a lot of things that I'm, I was bad at and I'm still bad at. And So to be able to go in every day with the intention of getting better and to actually be able to see those improvements was almost addicting for me. Um, Also with wrestling is just inherently such a challenge. Um, You and I talked about it before. Like there are some practices where you're in the middle of it and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it. (laughs) Like when you're 25 minutes into a grind match and you're like, this is absolutely terrible. Um, But you do make it through it. You make it through it every time. Then you just kind of sit there after like, man, like, that was awesome. Like I hated it at the time, but man, that was awesome. I really pushed myself to a place that I didn't think I could even get to, much less conquer it. Um, and I'd never had that in any other sport. I'd never had that feeling of like being in the moment and so unsure of what was going to happen next, or if I was even going to get to the next moment. Um, and that that just kept me coming back. And then as I got better and started winning bigger tournaments, obviously I love winning. Who doesn't? Um, and I was I was doing a lot of winning after a couple of years. So. There was that aspect too. But I think the most enjoyable moments for me were were in the practice room and in my training um, and just being able to see those tangible improvements every day.
0: Yeah. I call the wrestlers, I refer to them as the farmers of sport, right? These are the, these are among the hardest working athletes in the world. And when someone commits to wrestling, they're committing to just hard work that, you know, you have to like hard work if you don't like hard work. That's definitely definitely not the sport for you. So it, it says a lot about your character to be like, "Hey, I signed up for that for whatever for twelve years, thirteen years, fourteen years and counting." Um, you you also are a blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Give us um, give us a comparison of the two. They they are different sports. They are different arts. There has been a fusion of wrestling and Jiu-Jitsu, right? There's submission grappling tournaments that fuse wrestling and jujitsu. You have a sport like Sambo that fuses a lot of the leg lock and knee bar game with wrestling. You have MMA that's fusing a lot of different martial arts together. But there is a difference, I guess, in the cultural aspects a lot of times of jujitsu and wrestling. What do you see in terms of those differences?
2: <coughs> I think the biggest thing for me is that wrestling you're taught to always grind like I mean the sport especially when you think of like American style wrestling I mean you can watch a lot of international stuff and every country and region has their own style but the American style of wrestling is this inherent need to like be on the grind and and to be gritty and aggressive and just always like pushing yourself past things and and I think jujitsu kind of deviates from that in the sense that there's still motivation desire to get better but it's not this like let me punish my body just for the sake of improvement. Um, and that's something I actually kind of like about jujitsu jujitsu is that like you can, they have proven that you can still work really, really hard and not at the expense of destroying your body. Um, you know, there's more of a flow to it and that, that's just kind of like, you know, part of the sport too and the technical side of it, but it's not like, let's do a 50 minute grind match to prove how tough we are. Um, you no, know, there's a lot of respect. I think in wrestling, sometimes like everyone has an edge about them, and everyone has this little bit of an ego about them, and, and that's you know a lot of cases what makes a successful wrestler is having that confidence, that swagger. In um, jujitsu, I feel like it's a much more humble sport. Um, the community is a lot more laid back. I think you know the way you know you walk into a wrestling practice and it's like it's on. Like the second you walk in the door, it's like all right, let's freaking go. I'm in jujitsu. It's like you see your buddies and like, hey, what's up? And then when training starts, you train hard. You know what I mean? You approach tech. I approach technique the same way I approach technique in wrestling. You know, when I'm rolling and doing my live rolls, I, I roll hard. But it, it's not this like battle to see like who's the toughest person in the room. And it's just like I'm going to beat you with technique, and that that's how I'm going to improve. Um, I also just feel like it's there are less maybe maybe it's because I'm a female too, but. I felt like I had to overcome a lot less to be accepted in the room. Um, you know, in wrestling, being on a guy's team uh, through all of high school, I felt like every day I was having to prove myself. And in jiu-jitsu, every day, there's just, like, a lot of, like, mutual learning happening. You know, if, if you do something in your life, someone's like, hey, you try this next time. Or, like, I'll point something out. I'd be like, hey, I, you just, like, you know, hang on a second longer or slipped your elbow out. Like, it's – there's a lot more um, – desire to build, to build up your teammates. That's the same wrestling there isn't, but like, again, like you're not going to stop after a takedown and be like, Hey, I just like done this differently. Like, what, no, All you right. finished your, it's, it's a lot more like it's, it's more, I guess, community, I guess. Um, and just a little bit of a different culture in that regard. Um, and I've trained a bunch of different gyms and every gym is a little bit different, but I think, you know, across the board that that's been my experience. Um, even when I'm competing, same thing. Like when i would go and roll with these girls in competition, um, afterwards, it's like, Hey, what'd you do in this? And, like, we're like on the concrete mat side, like going over a position, we were just in, in, in a, in a fight. So it's, it's just a little bit different in that regard. Um, it, it's, it's a breath of fresh air for me for sure.
0: Yeah. I, I use the comparison where I think of, um, wrestling is, it, it, we're generalizing here that j- wrestling is just more force imposing your will and jujitsu has a lot more flow, a lot more playfulness, a lot more experiment. Let's see what happens if a lot more, like you said, coaching your teammates. I'll co- I'll show you exactly how I did the guillotine, exactly what I did. I want you to stop my guillotine so that I have to go to the next thing, the next thing there we're generalizing, but you know, I also use the, the analogy, like sort of if, if you had a group of wrestlers and a group of jiu-jitsu players, and you said, you know, we have to, there's a big wall in front of us, and we have to get on the other side of that wall. And I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but a lot of wrestlers would just be like, we're just going to run through the wall. Like, we'll, wall. we'll just run through, the, we'll just ram through the wall, and we'll get through the damn wall. Um, you know, you'll have the John Smith or whatever, this, you know, the, the, this supreme technician, there are some supreme technicians, right, like in wrestling, but in general, at the end of the day, it's like, If we have to run through the damn wall, we run through the damn wall. Jiu Jitsu people are like, well, we could take a helicopter. We could put, use a ladder. We could cut a hole in the middle. We could go underneath it. And again, super cerebral wrestlers. Like when you get into wrestling at the deepest level, there is deception. There is trickery. Somebody can hit a nasty duck, a gnarly duck under and It's like, wow. And they, and they set that up 30 seconds earlier with a shot with something high. And then they did a nasty duck. So there's deception, right? There's absolutely deception. You fake one way, you go the other way, and you finish the takedown. But jujitsu, deception and setting a trap is much more prevalent, right? There's people that will sort of they will bait you, they will lull you, they will pretend nothing's going on, they will let you, someone like Jeff Glover, they will let you advance. They'll let you walk into a hornet's nest and they're trying and they're gonna and they're they're gonna hang you at the end, right? And there's a lot more, but we are seeing now. A marriage of the two sports where you see things like homolo Bahal, Gracie Baja who has his Instagram channel like everyday parada, right? Like you watch the guy's Instagram channel. It's just kill 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 you watch Atos with Andre Galbo, my old friend and You watch those guys. It's just like it's just war, right? Like they're they're just their environment their competition environment is just kill 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 it's it's there's a lot of wrestler mindset infused in there and, and I even see you would know this far better than i do. I when you talk about this i see i do watch first of all i love wrestling i arguably i think i actually deep down and i and this is horrible to say but i deep down love wrestling more than jujitsu it's my first love i love wrestling more it's just my body can't take that grind like jujitsu allows the older athlete we're seeing athletes 50 60 70. you know you saw those two women a couple weeks ago at at one of the (laughs) high tournaments 74 75 year old women in tournaments like wrestling is so unforgiving on the body on the neck on the hips on the shoulders on everything that it's hard to be a 50 year old and the slams the hard takedowns it it is just it's kind of like judo there's just no nice way to learn judo without being thrown on your back and if you're a teenager or you're in your 20s great you can get slammed hundreds of times and hit the mat and then pop up but once you start hitting 45 50 60 you don't want to be get like you don't mind doing the judo slam to someone else but you don't want to be the object of that slam and so what i have seen it it seems to be so i watch a lot of wrestling videos i just my body i have a 27 inch scar down my right leg which i almost lost and that took a lot out of my wrestling game. That Nate's never been the same. I've never had the same explosivity. I've never had the same blood flow in that leg. Like, jiu-jitsu allowed me. Jiu-jitsu is a lot more, as I said to Matt Sarah years ago, former UFC champion, build your game around your frame, right? It doesn't matter. It's kind of like soccer. You can be 6'5 and be a phenomenal soccer player. You can be Diego Maradona, who just passed away today at age 60. It's all over ESPN. God rest his soul. You know, five foot nothing, right? Five foot three. And just trick and jujitsu is kind of like that where you can, there's a place for you. You can figure out how to use your body to your advantages. There's a lot more tricks. Not saying wrestling is not, it's just not obvious to a lot of us. There are ways to do the same thing in wrestling. It's just not as obvious or, you know, it's just not as obvious. So what are you seeing? I watch quite a bit of, of wrestling videos, not nearly as much as you, but I'm seeing guys You know, sort of the funk wrestling, like Ben Askren, where people are, you know, someone shoots in on them and they're diving to their back for a split second to get out of things and taking chances that you didn't see 15 years ago, 20 years ago. These were big no-no's and you're seeing them. And I sometimes wonder, is that, is that jujitsu making its way there? I mean, you know, this brief momentarily back exposure, taking chances, are you seeing wrestling? take anything away from it. It's obvious that jiu-jitsu is taking from the wrestling community. There are jujitsu players out there that are phenomenal, even Andre Galbo. A lot of what Andre does, I mean, there's a lot of wrestling in his game. We're seeing that. That's obvious. What are the wrestlers, what, if anything, are the wrestlers taking from the jiu-jitsu community in terms of, like you just said too, even if it's not moves, is it a mindset more of build up your partners, You know, a change in the culture? What, what are you seeing that's crossing over from jiu-jitsu to wrestling?
2: I think, it, in, I guess first, it's funny that you bring up that wall analogy, because that was actually the moment that jujitsu clicked for me. Someone once told me that wrestling is about being taught to go straight through the wall. Jiu-jitsu is about being taught to go around the wall. And that was kind of a moment for me where I was like, oh, got it. So I shouldn't just keep rushing in. that's why I keep getting triangled over and over again. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, and I started applying that to my wrestling as well. I was like, okay, I've been taught to go through the wall my whole life. What if I start thinking about going around the wall? And, and like you kind of mentioned, I'm in the older age range of wrestlers. And crazily enough, at 27 years old, I'm the older girl, you know? Um, and I can't do that grind anymore. You know, my, my training has changed a lot in wrestling. Um, and jujitsu. jitsu me kind of started is almost like a recovery workout. I get out of wrestling practice, like, cool down, shower, and I go to jujitsu to, like, cool down for an hour and a half. Um, and, I, and I, again, speaking from my own experience, I kind of started applying that to my wrestling in terms of, like, how can I elongate my wrestling career by applying some of these jiu-jitsu philosophies and and going around the wall and doing things differently and being creative and crafty. And that kind of started translating in my wrestling. You mentioned Ben Askren, how he's a little bit funky. Um, And Ben Askren was really a generational talent in that regard. I mean, He really made funk wrestling popular. Um, And now you're seeing these kids that are implementing that funk into their game. Um, And I am as well, I'm, I'm starting to be like, okay, I can't dive in on shots as much anymore. My shoulders are terrible. What if I bait someone into my leg and then I kind of work around them and make make them do the work. And I will just kind of be a little bit sneaky and crafty. Like I am in jujitsu, you know what I mean? Where I am baiting people into some things and setting these traps. Um, And I apply it to my wrestling. And I I think as a whole, we're starting to see that in wrestling as well, whether it's just the evolution of this funk that that Ben Askren kind of started, um, or if it's just, you know, a natural progression of the sport as it, as it, you know, grows in it and people have to find more ways to be offensive and be creative. Um, but I think of, you know, a couple years ago, there was a kid, um, I think it was like a state champ somewhere, but a, a, vir- a video went viral of a kid hitting an Iminari roll to a low single um, in a wrestling match. And oh, it like, right. set the wrestling yeah. world on fire for like a solid six week period where everyone was like, what is that? And all the jujitsu people were like, it's a freaking Iminari roll, it's basic. Like, I don't like, and like, no one was impressed, but the wrestling community was like, whoa, that was so cool. So all of these kids started hitting Imanari roles and matches. And it was kids that were like super high level state champ kidding against like, you know, first and second year wrestlers. So all these videos are going on people hitting Imanari roles. And I think eventually kids got too cocky and were trying to hit it on better kids. And it was just not working in wrestling matches. So that, that trend kind of died out. But that was one of those moments where you saw something from jujitsu jitsu really translating over into the wrestling creed and people realizing that there's more than one way to do things. You know what I mean? You don't have to shoot a strangle of single. You can roll across your shoulder blades and pick someone's ankle up backwards and see if it works. Um, and I think, again, like even though that even hearty roll didn't stick as like a fundamental wrestling technique, I think those was one of those moments where like there's more to wrestling than just doing things how they've always been done. Uh, we can be pr- progressive. We can be crafty. Um, and start implementing some of these things. Um, and, and again, like, again, I'm, I'm an older wrestler, so I like the approach of jiu-jitsu, where like, you don't have to grind every day and and bounce your head off the mat and, you know, do a million reps and blast doubles. But I, I think maybe just because we're seeing some of these old school wrestlers that were used to be coaches kind of phasing out or we're seeing these older coaches who did train that way and are now later in life um that are maybe trying to to not make the same mistakes their kids that they made themselves as an athlete but I, I think just you know the importance of recovery and training smart um and training smarter rather than harder has become a more common mentality and a more common philosophy and whether that's come from jujitsu jitsu or whether that's just the progression of our sport um I, i'm not sure but I, I do think that with the popularity of jujitsu and especially with like more of like submission grappling like adcc type stuff um you're starting to see more and more crossover both ways both from wrestling jiu-jitsu and jiu-jitsu into wrestling um, and as someone who's actively competing in both sports right now I love it <laughs> because it helps me both ways for sure, but uh, There's there's definitely some things that are starting to cross over and uh, it's it's really cool And I think it's just great for both sports
0: now the the popularity We'll just call it funk wrestling where you were seeing these insane scrambles now these insane these these wrestlers that are turning defense into offense that are just masters. It in the old days, def- the defensive res- defensive the masterful defensive wrestlers were just defensive, right? They, they might they might be defensive. They might block one shot, score two points, get an escape from the bottom, and win three to two. They actually changed the rules. They used to have nine minute matches in college. They 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 poured them down. They 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 paired that back to seven, to, you know, and then started calling stalling like really quick. Like we're gonna. We're going to sh- we're going to shorten the time of the matches. We're going to shave the time. We're going to call stalling quick. So that sort of resulted in it re- rewarded offensive wrestling more, right? Instead of def- it made it harder for those people that were just stalling, stalling, defensive, great hips, you know, get one takedown and then just just coast to a three to two win or something like that, right? And and um, I wanted to mention something though. So 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 we are seeing these wrestlers that are masterful in these scrambles and turning defense into into offense. The predecessor to to Ben Askren in my mind was a guy named Rico Cipperelli. You might remember him. I don't know if you, you remember Rico Ciparelli at Iowa. It was back in the like late 80s, I believe. And, and, and he was there. He's actually from my hometown in Baltimore. And he went to Iowa and he was very flashy, and everybody loved watching him. He had he'd have these matches that would be like 15 to 10 and 15 to 12, or you know, 20 to, to, to 5. He was just an offensive machine. And he had very much a funk, a very daring take risks So people. The fans loved watching him because you didn't know what was going to happen. He was doing things nobody else had done. He actually came over to MMA and coached people like Frank Trigg in the early going, and I think he worked even with Randy Couture a little bit. Um, so Rico Ciparelli was one of those with that sort of very charismatic fan friendly, you don't know what's going to happen next. Um, interesting his coach, Dan Gable. I got to interview Gable in the early two thousands for a magazine story. And my premise was sort of like in the NFL, you know, how they talk about coaching trees and they'll say, here's Bill Walsh. These are all the head coaches that were under Bill Walsh or Bill, or, or Bill Parcells, right? Bill Parcells, the coaching trees, Hugh, Bill Belichick and many others, right? You see these coaching trees, like, wow, look at all these people that are learning. And so my premise with Gable was, look at his impact not necessarily technical even though the the most successful people we've seen inside the octagon have come from a wrestling background a wrestling base but it's more of the mindset like gable's extreme mindset with workouts i think dan gable so at that time i think gable has an imprint he has an impact on on ufc on mma and he's never stepped foot in an octagon but his mindset, the way that he trained, had a heavy impact on Pat Militich back there. Pat Miletich back in the day when Team Militich, with, with Matt Hughes and Robbie Loyler and Jens Pulver and Tim Sylvia and many others, Jeremy Horn and many others, like they were the stuff back in the day. And Militich was really taking what he had learned. He literally had went into wrestling rooms, trained with Gable, picked Gable's brain, fitted on his athletes who were winning UFC titles and were helping to build the sport. So my premise was, listen, this guy's just the mindset of Gable, the extreme mindset is already in MMA. It's influencing the athletes. And I would argue Gable was a wacko back in his day, like in the seventies and sixties, when he was walking around college campus wearing like five pound ankle weights and always jogging and just, just a machine, just like the, a real life Terminator who was like, look, I'm just all about wrestling. Wrestling's all that matters. I'll go to class. I'll get my A's. And wrestling is all that matters. People would have looked at him, you know, back then as like, this guy's crazy. This guy's a wacko. Like, if he had never won national titles and he'd never won Olympic gold and he'd never won the 15 national titles at Iowa, people would have said he's crazy, right? He's crazy until he wins world titles and they're winning national. Now he's not crazy. Now he's kind of a genius, right? But... His extremism, I look now at the culture in America of the extreme athletes, whether they be ultra marathoners, whether they be crossfitters, whether they be MMA fighters, whether they be wrestlers, Dan Gable was one of the first movers to be like this extreme, what we thought was extreme is now commonplace for the best athletes in many sports. Like that guy was a first mover in those extreme workouts. So wrestling's impact, it doesn't get the credit via someone like Gable wrestling's impact on workouts that are out there now that, that previously people consider that extreme now they're getting commonplace among the elite to me a lot of that comes from wrestling it comes from people like gable and it's just fascinating to see um, wrestling has had an impact on a lot of sports we even see some of the football players that some of the best offensive linemen they come they're, they're state champion wrestlers right they, they love a lot of the colleges love those state champion wrestlers. Put them on the O line. They work harder. They're tough as nails. They have a little mean streak in them. Their balance is phenomenal. They're great with, you know, put, you know, with blocking. So, anyway, you got me going with that. Chipperelli was, you know, anybody out there, go dig up some Chipperelli, man. He was, he was uh, Ben Askren before, before Ben Askren. Let's let's shift gears for one second. Let's talk about motivation and mindset you know that i love that topic you you have been in this sport now whatever almost 15 years or so what has been driving you julia and has that changed have the motivations changed as with with different chapters of your life
2: oh absolutely um i mean when i i think that i i really start taking wrestling seriously in college um I always took it seriously in high school, but I was playing a million different sports, and like I took wrestling seriously during wrestling season. Um, and again, I was still being that nerd and stuff when I was out of season. I was still going to club practices, but like my priority would shift to softball or it would shift to hockey, and that was I still cared about wrestling, but it wasn't my number one priority at those times. Um, so when I went to, to college. I, I knew that. Wrestling has become a number one priority, and that's what I wanted. I mean, it was the sport that I loved the most, everything I was doing. Um, it's a sport that I was most fascinated by, and I was I was very confident in that decision. Um, so my first goal when I got to college, um, weirdly enough, was an Olympic year. Um, it was 2011. Um, 2012 is the Olympic year. So my goal was to make it to Olympic trials. Um, I, I was 18 years old. I'm like, I'm probably not going to make an Olympic team right now. But, but to qualify for Olympic trials at 18 years old, that seems like a pretty cool goal. Um, And I was able to accomplish that. Uh, I I took fifth at the U S open that year, top seven qualified for Olympic trials. So I I was in, um, and competing at Olympic trials, which was at the university of Iowa um, in Carver Hawkeye arena was, Unreal. I, I mean, you talk about a state and especially the, a school that's just absolutely nutty and psychopathic about wrestling. It's the University of Iowa. And to compete in an arena like that with that kind of energy and, and with fans who are so educated about the sport. I, I mean, they these are fans that, you know, there are 95-year-old grandpas bringing their five-year-old sons that are already showing them like the ways of wrestling and able to understand nuance. It, uh, unlike any other, you know, wrestling fan base and anywhere else in the country. Um, it was just such, I keep using the word electric, but that's what it was. I mean, that was, that was the moment for me where I was like, man, this is freaking awesome. Like I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I know that's not realistic, but I was like, I, I want to continue competing in these kind of atmospheres with this kind of pressure and, and, and this kind of, you know, this with things on the line, things that matter and a spot for the Olympic team. Um, and obviously didn't make the Olympic team that year, but I ended up taking fourth. And by the time Olympic trials rolled around, it was a week after my 19th birthday. Um, I, I lost to Christy Davis, who's a nine-time world medalist and two-time world champion. And I lost to Iris Smith, who was a 2005 world champion. So I was like, my first ever Olympic trials, a week into being 19 years old, I lost to two world champions and American women's wrestling legends. Like, man, I, I can do this. I can compete with these girls. Um, and then I obviously had four more years until the next Olympic Olympic year, but I had all these kind of intermediary goals. You know, I wanted to win a college national title. I wanted to make a junior world team. I wanted to make a university world team. And as I started checking these things off the list, you know, I, I won a college national title. I ended up winning two. I, I had two undefeated college seasons. Um, I won a bronze medal at the university world championships. I made two junior world teams. Um, I made my first USA senior national team uh, by the end of my sophomore year of college. And I was doing all these things pretty young and I was like, I'm so glad I chose to pursue this. Like, like these, and having those kind of micro goals just kind of kept me going. Like it wasn't like I like ever got stagnant. Like it was always like the next step. Once I aged out of being a junior world team member, I wanna make a university world team. And like always kind of trying to figure out what's next. Um, and I think sometimes I fell short and that was sometimes the best thing for me. Um, I lost in the college national finals as a sophomore. And I was like, I'm never gonna do that again. And now am I never gonna lose in the national finals again, I'm never gonna lose in college again. Um, and I didn't. I went undefeated my junior and senior year. And I think just always looking for constant progress and never expecting myself to like jump levels overnight. I mean, there's the cliche that you have to get 1% better every day. And I feel like I've always kind of strived to do that. And, I, and I've been successful at it. Um, and go back to what we we're talking about earlier, like every day, realizing that like I'm bad at something. I have somewhere to improve. It's never like, ah, I get, you know, I, I never go into a day or a training session or a one-on-one without a plan or a goal or a mission. I, I always know like, man, yesterday in live, I was not hand fighting well. I, I, I have a purpose today. And, and always having a purpose in every workout, every lift, um, every cardio session, every sprint. Um, it's for something. And especially now in, in my last year of competing, and I, this past year actually should have been my last year of competing. I was going to retire after the 2020 Olympics, um, so that's been pushed back. But, you know, I, I have an expiration date on my wrestling career. Um, you know, my, my college coach, um, who's actually my boss now always says like, you have like this hourglass and when your college career starts, you turn that glass over and every day more and more sand is just coming out of that hourglass. Um, and we tell our freshmen, you have a lot of sand in here how much can you get out of that sand? I have like a few left there just barely hanging on. So every single grain of sand has to matter. Um, So I I think I've always just maintained that mentality pretty consistently throughout my career, um, knowing that every day matters, every workout matters, and I find joy in that. I I like being able to see how much I can get out of myself at any given day. So I, I think that's the mentality that I've used. And I think I've also developed a lot of gratitude later in my career too that, I, at 27 years old, I still get to do this. I mean, I, th- I think I saw a stat the other day that only like six or 7% of high school athletes get to compete in college um, at any level, at, at JUCO, and AI, D1, D2, whatever. Um, so that 6%, I-, I was part of it. And then I was even that smaller percent that got to continue competing at the highest level after college I- on the US national team. And um, I-, I think that's kind of impacted my training too, is that I'm grateful for every day that I get to be there. I mean, it's a privilege and an honor. Um, and how many people don't even get that chance to pursue the sport they love at a high level um, late into their 20s. So I, I think that's that's been pretty helpful for me as well, is just understanding that I, I really am privileged in that regard to still be here and still training.
0: Now, for you to mention Hourglass, Noah, we still love you. Noah is being humble. Noah is such a great contributor to us. He's making sure the trains run on time. Um, I appreciate you, Noah, by the way. Um, when, when, when Julia mentions hourglass, that is so serendipitous. That's like a sign to me. You know, I'm a very spiritual guy. Um, I, I wrote, I was writing, I was journaling hourglass this morning at six something in the morning when I woke up. I have that written down. Like, and you, for you to mention your coach with hourglass, it's like telepathic. Like, whoa, that's that's definitely, I think about that a lot. Like, how much is left? I'm in an advanced season of my life. Is there still enough time on the clock? Am I too old for this, for that? And so it's so uh, serendipitous that you say that one thing that, that I think a lot about wrestling and even me, like I always say, when I got my black, jujitsu black belt and I was training twice a day, there were, there were days I was training three times a day. If you include, Sometimes I was just training three jujitsu sessions a day and the times I wasn't, I was usually training twice a day for years and then I was going to the gym and doing jogging and, and lifting weights. So those were three a days, right, for a lo- for a long time in my upper 30s and my early 40s. And I was thinking, I was like, I would go home, I was married at the time and I'd be like, how do I justify this to her, right? Like my wife is rightfully like jealous of jujitsu, all the attention I give to jujitsu I'm not making, I don't have any, like if I was making a lot of money or good money from there, then I could justify it. Hey, it's our livelihood. I'm, I'm building a better life. but I, I wasn't smart enough or great enough back then to make the money. I just loved it. And so it reminds me, and this is, this is the way it is for a lot of wrestlers. It's changing with things like flow wrestling and other platforms. And some of the, some of the events that you've been in, like Nittany, Klein, w, Nittany Lion WC and some of the events and the, you know, Grapple at the Garden and, and things like that, it's changing, there's more money, more sponsorship, more opportunities. That's improving for both wrestling and jiu-jitsu. I mean, I know people that are making millions in jiu-jitsu, millions, right? So they're, 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 we're producing millionaires there. We've probably got a few in wrestling. and so, But by and large, the people that are there are, it's a passion driven thing. There is no, nobody is in it. You were not in it as a teenager in college. I was not in it. You were not in love with that sport thinking, I'm going to get rich. I'm going to make a lot of money. You are an assistant coach right now. You are paid, but I know that you were working other jobs. Like you had, you had one or two other jobs subsidizing your income and you're an athlete. So you're just, you're making it happen. However, it has to go to, you know, wrestling was not where you were making your money. And so I think for people out there listening just to look at the purity of it, the purity of it, this is not the NBA, this is not, you know, $200 million contracts, $80 million contracts. This is for pure love, pure passion of the sport that you've poured your blood, your sweat, your sacrifices, your pioneering energy, a a pioneer. I mean, um, only girl on the mat in a lot of rooms. And so talk a little bit about that, about, about the, you know, pursuing this passion at the expense of the money and how tight the money can get and how you've been able to make, you know, Rob Peter to pay Paul as a figure of speech, like just to make it happen, just to keep your dream alive. Because, you know, in a lot of, in, in, in some of the big sports, people don't have to do that. But in wrestling, you do. You had to, you had to find a way like to, still pay your bills and you had to, you know, you're tired from wrestling and you got to still go to study for class. You got to work. You got a lot on your plate. How did you reconcile that in your mind? Were you thinking, Hey, I could make, I could just, I should just do something else and make, make money. I, I need money. I just, I should just stop this. Was that, did that ever tug at you? Like, Hey, I'm not making any money. I'm passionate. I love it, but I need to make money. Were you ever, were you ever torn there? Talk about that sacrifice of passion versus profits.
2: Uh, well, first, I think you summed it up perfectly um, in that no one gets into the sport for the money. I, I mean, it, it's wrestling isn't mainstream enough. Um, we're getting better, like you were talking about, um, things like the Nittany Lion card and these full wrestling cards, but no one gets into the sport thinking, like, man, this is going to be my career. Um, you know, you have a wrestling career, but this isn't like your career. Uh, so when I first graduated from college, I, I knew I wanted to continue pursuing wrestling and, and competing, and I moved to the Olympic Training Center. Um, which to me was like a best case scenario. Like you have world-class facilities, you know, everything available to you, great partners. And my living expenses were all paid for You know, I was living on complex there. Um, you know, you get unlimited access to the calf. You have you know, made the queen's room every day. I'm like, this is gonna be awesome. Like I, I don't have to worry about any bills. I just get to wrestle all day. Um, and I lived there for a year. It was during the 2016 Olympic year and I hated it. Um, I, I hated the fact that I was living on complex. Um, I hated that my life entirely revolved around wrestling, um, which I thought I would love. I I just missed having like external stimulation from non-wrestling people. You know, I have a lot of other passions besides wrestling. And it was just like wrestling all the time. Plus it was an Olympic year. So there was constant pressure. There were always super high expectations. Um, And after a while I was like, man, I want to make my own food. As convenient as it is to eat in the calf every day. and, And the calf at the Olympic training center has really good food. I was like, I miss making dinner, I miss meal prepping, I miss doing some of the things that normal people do in in their daily life. You know, when I was in college, I lived off campus, I did my meal prep every week, Uh, I liked having my own house, and it was kind of like regressing, it was like back like I was in the dorms again, because I was, I was living in a dorm essentially. Um, So after that Olympic year, I actually left the Olympic Training Center, and people thought I was nuts. They're like, you have everything handed to you on a silver platter right now, you have no living expenses, you get to pursue your goals every day, and I was like, I know, but I'm not happy. I mean, this isn't, this isn't I want my life to be like. Um, people said, oh, well, you don't care about wrestling. And I was like, that has nothing to do with it. I mean, it, I actually regressed in that year because I was so unhappy and I started resenting going to practice every day. So I made the choice to come back to King. Um, originally I was just training, uh, I was working at Dick's sporting goods just to have a little bit of additional income. Um, and that's when the assistant coaching job opened up at King at my alma mater. And I actually had the job Offered to me sitting in the stands at the Olympics. Um, I went to the 2016 Olympics as a training partner for Adeline Gray. Um, one of my college teammates had made the Olympic team, Haley Agello. So my my head coach, who's not my boss, was there, and he offered me the job in the stands. He's like, "I want you to be the assistant coach," and I was like, "Awesome!" I, one, I knew I had a passion for coaching, but two, I was like, "This is the best way for me to train and still have a little bit of an income and have some benefits." Um, at a school that I love and that I'm passionate about. Um, you know, I had a really good relationship with my coach and I was like, this is going to be a a, a great scenario for me. Um, so I jumped at it and, and, you know, I I had improved a lot my four years at King. And as soon as I went back to King and started training there again, I started seeing constant improvement again in my wrestling. Um, but so that, that kind of solved that issue. I was still able to train, but I still had some income, but I, I never felt like I was, having to give up professional goals for, for wrestling um especially because it, you know i started thinking like i want to coach long term now uh, but being an assistant coach at a small school doesn't pay a whole lot of money um i mean it's livable especially living in bristol tennessee the cost of living is pretty low but you know i, I was like man i could be doing something else too so i started working for wrestling a girl which is a nonprofit that's focused on women's wrestling of course um internationally domestically the grassroots level And again, it it wasn't just a job, it's something I'm passionate about, about growing the sport. Um, And it's a lot of stuff that I was already doing. I mean, just being an advocate for girls at the high school and collegiate level. um, And so I was like, this is gonna be perfect. Uh, Sally Roberts is the CEO, who I was national team teammates with for several years. uh, We'd always clicked really well. So she brought me on board. I'm like, this is awesome. Now I have a little bit more financial comfort, but it's still involved with wrestling. Again, I don't feel like I'm sacrificing my training putting a couple extra hours of work every week. Um, and I'm just also not someone that sits still very well. I mean, I, I don't do well like having free time. I feel like I could be making an extra buck or I could be training or I could be bettering something, whether it's my own life or somebody else's. So my days became pretty full uh, with wrestling girls stuff and coaching and training, but that's how I'm happy. I'm not happy sitting in a dorm room all day having meals fed to me on a silver platter and just going to practice and, and sleeping in and taking naps. like. I want my days to be full. I want my days to be productive. So simple i maybe overloading myself, maybe it was taking away from wrestling, but I felt like I was doing something good. Um, the year actually that I won my first US Open in 2018 was the same year that I did my MBA program in finished grad school. So people were like, why are you wrestling right now? Why are you doing grad school? I'm like, because I I want to set myself up for the future. Like, I I don't think that this is attracting And then I went and won a U.S. Open. I was like, "Mm, I think I was doing okay there. Um, So I I think sometimes I I do get told I'm doing too much or that I'm sacrificing my professional career to continue wrestling or I'm I'm sacrificing my wrestling training to try to have this professional career simultaneously. But that's how I'm happy. I think that's how I function best. Um, And I I just, I've never felt... um, not bitter, but but resentful t- towards my professional goals or my wrestling goals. I think they, you know, coincide very well. I, I think there's a pretty harmonious relationship between the two. Um, and I think with coaching, I think that makes me a better wrestler. And I think it helps my athletes as well. When I go on these tours to China for a national team training camp, you know, I have my technique notebook and I take pages and pages and pages of notes and I bring it back to my college girls and I'm like, Hey, I think you would really like this. Or, I think this would work really well. And I'm constantly referencing that notebook. So, um, those things kind of go hand in hand really well. And, and I, now I do make, you know, a pretty decent wage doing everything that I do, but it, it's not because of the things I've done as an athlete, but but that is starting to improve. Um, you mentioned the Nittany Lion card that I was on back in September. You know, I, I got paid pretty well for that. I'm going to be on another card, hopefully the end of December. You know, it, it's the opportunities are there. And that's actually one of the few things good that's come of COVID is that you can't have these big opens with thousands of people anymore. They're having to do these smaller cards, but what it's really created is opportunities for athletes to showcase themselves and build up matches similar to a UFC fight card. I and mean, you have athletes able to talk trash on Twitter and, and, and hype these matches up with, you're not going to a tournament with like, I don't know who I'm going to wrestle. It's like you have one specific opponent in mind that you know about for two or three weeks. So it, it's created a lot of really good wrestling and it's created a lot of good financial opportunities for us as well. So um, that, that's, you know, 2020 has been frustrating for sure, but it's actually helped the athletes financially in a lot of ways. So um, I'm thankful for that, that I, that can have an income that way as well now. But I am thankful that I never put aside professional opportunities to continue competing, um, which isn't for everyone. Some athletes need to just focus on competing and, and they, they can't multitask or compartmentalize. And I think that I'm really grateful that that is one of my skill sets, that I can compartmentalize and that I can, you know, I, I do have good time management um, to the point where I actually bartend a couple nights a week too on weekends because I can't sit still very well. Um, it, but it's, it's, it's a skill that I'm very thankful for that, that I have. Um, and, and I think that once I am done competing next year, I'm, I'm still going to compete in jujitsu and, and potentially MMA. But once I do start making that transition, I have set myself up for a professional career. Um, and I am already I already have one foot in the door in that regard. Um, so it, it's it's working out for me. But But it did take some time to figure out how I function best, and, and it wasn't just focusing on wrestling one hundred percent of the time. And if and that meant I had to work a little bit harder to, to support myself, I was willing to do that, and it, it's worked out for me really well.
0: Yeah, you've got that um, ultra curiosity. You've got extreme versatility. I said multitasking. I, I I felt like you were you were talking about me too. That's that's how I am too. I like to have my hand in a lot of different things. Um, you're there, you're coaching some of the best collegiate women wrestlers out there. And when you have athletes that have nerves, right, they have nerves, they're battling something, they're inside their own head. How do you deal with that kind of athlete? Obviously they're all different, but just give us maybe, you know, uh, some general advice you would give to the athletes that are, they're really talented, but they're inside their own head. They're 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 dealing with a lot of nerves, they're dealing with a lot of fear, maybe they're psyching themselves out. How do you how do you talk to that to that athlete?
2: Well I think for I mean you have to approach every athlete differently, of course. I mean every athlete responds to different things, but I think the biggest common thing that we see in our girls is that they, they start having doubts. You know, they, they don't they have confidence in their training, but then when it comes down to competition well, what if I didn't do enough? What if I, you know, that one day of practice I missed my lab, or what, what, what's going to happen? And, you know, these, again, are, are 19, 20-year-old girls. I mean, those are, that's that age range is a time where a lot of young girls start to doubt themselves, not just in their sport of choice, but, you know, that there's a lot of outside pressures and things like that. Um, and we, we tag with sports, like, a lot. Um, we actually do these things. I, I call them Friday morning fun meetings, but uh, we have classroom chat sessions on Friday mornings at 9.15, um, where we talk about the off-the-mat aspects of the sport. Um, sports psych and nutrition and, and you know, we, we watched like ESPN 30 for 30s, but those are the times when we really tackled some of that, that mental and sports psych side of side of things. Um, and a big thing that I, I kind of preach them is self-talk. And one of the things I, I always tell them is that if you talk to your, no, if, if your best friend talked to you the way you talk to yourself, would they still be your best friend? And if the answer is no, you probably need to start rethinking things. If you, you know, if your best friend was telling you like, you didn't do enough, man, I, I, I should have done that extra rep the other day, man, like you really, you really dropped the ball on that. Like you'd be like, screw me, get out of here, man. Like, I don't, it, but if your best friend is telling you, like you did enough, you are a badass. Like you do got this in the bag. Like that's your best friend. That's who you want hyping you up. So why are you telling those negative things to yourself? You have complete control over that. You have complete control over your thoughts and, and the way you speak to yourself. and. Why you're not taking advantage of that? Pipe yourself up. Be your own best hype man. Um, I talk about like the stop sign analogy, where I'm like, every time you have a negative thought, just picture a giant red and white stop sign in your mind. You know what I mean? Like as soon as you recognize those thoughts, you gotta stop. Um, you know, and you have to make that that very conscious choice to be like, I need to stop thinking this way. I need to change my thought. You need to have a mm-hmm. set. You need to have a focus. Um, in college, Sarah Hodebrandt, who was one of my college teammates, now a world silver medalist, um, she had a hair tie on her shoe. And every time she looked down and saw that hair tie, she knew to reset. She's like this, you know, if she got taken down, she looked look at that hair tie, reset. Um, so, so every girl responds to different things, but I think that self-talk thing is the biggest component. I mean, we train hard. You know, we have girls who are pushing each other in the room every single day. They are capable and they just needed to be reminded of that sometimes. And I can tell them as much as I want to, I'm blue in the face, but unless they're telling it to themselves and they believe it themselves, it's not going to do any good. Um, And you start to see that in our older girls. I mean, as they develop some maturity, they are like that. They're like, they have that chip on that shoulder and that edge where like, man, I, I am the stuff, you know, I, I have everything, I have all the tools, I trust my training, I trust my coaches and they're super successful. And, and hopefully they start translating that down to some of the, to the to the underclassmen saying like, you know, you train with me every day. I'm, I'm the best girl in the country. You train with me every day and you take me down, you're probably the second best girl in the country. I mean, they still have that attitude that like, ah, you're not there yet, but. You know they're just they're a really good group and they build each other up a lot in that way too. Um, Again, I I can tell them things some blue in the face, but hearing it from your peers is sometimes a lot more powerful. It's a different voice. It's someone that you maybe connect a little bit better with. Um, You know, similar in age, people that you're going through the same things with being a student athlete. And I I think those are things we kind of try to preach to them that you're your own best advocate. um, You're your own best hype man. And and when you start believing those things that you're telling yourself, you start seeing a lot of success. Um, Don't worry about the technical side and, and the the reps and the training, like we'll take care of that. You know what I mean? That, that's our job. But your job is to believe in yourself and believe that you did all the right things. And and if you do that, you're you're going to start winning a lot of matches and a lot of tournaments.
0: And that's that's a beautiful. I had not heard that. If your best friend, that's a beautiful confidence self talk improvement technique. If your best friend was talking to you like that, they wouldn't be your best friend anymore. Where did you get that? Do you recall where you picked that up? And that, That's a pretty, that's a good one.
2: I think I actually got it um, from Emma Randall. she used to be one of our national team coaches, um, has her doctorate in sports psych, and she used to do some sports psych sessions with us, and it, I think that's where I heard it the first time. Um, uh-huh. She's actually the, the woman's program coordinator at Beat the Streets of New York, um, but she's phenomenal. I mean, both as a person, she's a great wrestling coach, is a great wrestling coach, um, and really has a lot of... Good nuggets of knowledge when it comes to sports psych, so I think that's where I picked that up years ago, um, and I think it's still pretty applicable to that's just not everyone. I like the stop me, sign like, one yeah. too. The,
0: the stop sign one's kind of NLP, you know, like an anchor. Like you know, um, you had mentioned to me last time when we when we spoke about Adeline Gray, who's just a phenomenal wrestler. You just love 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 so many things about her, her work ethic, her mindset. Um, tell us a little bit about Adeline Gray and, and what makes her so special.
2: Adeline's biggest asset is her confidence. And I think anyone that's ever been around her for more than 30 seconds would probably tell you that as well. Um, You know, one, she's just such a great ambassador for our sport for women's wrestling, obviously an incredible athlete, but when you really get to know her, she really just takes on, you, you take on a whole new level of respect for her. Um, And there are some people that I should say don't like Adeline, but there are some people that she maybe rubs the wrong way because she is super blunt and super forward um, and super confident which I appreciate in somebody. I mean, someone that, that is upfront, honest, and you always know exactly how they feel um, and has that belief in their self. I mean, Adeline, I don't even think needs that stop sign because she's never had a negative thought in her entire life. I mean, it, <laughs> people can tell her something. Like, we've been in practices and like someone will give her some kind of like constructive criticism and she'll somehow turn it into like a positive. And mm-hmm. I hope Adeline, like your front headlock needs work. She's like, I know because my low single is so good, right? Like, it, it's like, mm-hmm. like she just has an ability to twist things to make it pro Adeline. It's actually incredible. Um, yeah. Before the world championships in 2015, we were working on actually uh, front headlock offense. And she had slammed my face into the mat so many times that my nose was red, like actually red. And mm-hmm. she kept telling she's she was working with Troy Steiner, uh, who's the brother of our head national team coach, yeah. Terry Steiner. That's with Dan Gable at Iowa. So that Gable influence again. Um, and like, Troy's like, yeah, it looks good. Alan's like, it doesn't feel right. And Troy's like, well, try this. And I mean, he's like, I still think it looks good, but try this. Alan's like, ah, uh, I don't know. I'm like, I don't mind, my face is red. Like, it's good. And she's like, mm, nah, I think we're done. Like, I'll just work on this next year. And I got up and walked away. And Troy's like, did she just say next year? I'm like, yes she said next year and if Adeline says she'll look next year it means next year because she's so confident everything else she's doing she doesn't feel like she needs a front headlock and like a week later she won a world championship again so it's like that's just how she operates it's like she never it never even occurs to her to have doubt like to, to her that's such a foreign concept that the thought of losing is just it, it's quite literally foreign I mean she is so convinced that she's the best girl in the world that, that she becomes like you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, she manifests world titles like nobody's business. I mean, she's won five of them. Um, and that's not to downplay. I mean, her, her physical attributes, and obviously she's an incredible wrestler. She has a big leg, leg lace in the world, male or female. I mean, it, it, it's unreal, but those aren't her strongest skill sets. I mean, it, it's her mental game and, and her mental fortitude and her just absolute conviction and her ability and, and where she stands and, to her that's firmly on the first place podium and she's proven that over and over again
0: now julia um, have you you know her have you ever had the chance to, to ask her about the source of that was there a parent was there a mentor was that just some event some life event that happened and triggered that where she what do you know what have you ever conversed with her about the source of that
2: yeah we, we talked about a little bit um so adeline uh has four sisters, well, she has, she's one of four sisters. Uh, her mom and dad, four daughters, all girls. Um, and almost all of the girls in Adeline's family are exactly like that. Um, I'm pretty good friends with her one sister, Geneva, we're pretty close, um, who's exactly like that. Um, her other younger sister, Bree, was a Division one soccer player at Air Force. And her youngest sister, um, Bella, was never much of an athlete, but excels in theater. I mean, that's what she is in college for, a theater kid her whole life. Um, which you know as a former musical theater kid myself that requires a whole different kind of confidence to stand up in front of hundreds of people and put yourself out there like that so it's not the same as athletic confidence but it requires a lot of confidence if not more confidence right? you know? Yeah. so all her all of her sisters are like that um and so geneva is the one i'm also closest to and, and she's just like adeline i mean just unwavering confidence in everything that she does and me and Adeline and Geneva have talked about it. Like, did this come from your parents? And they're like, I mean, a little bit. I mean, her her dad's high up in the police department in Denver and, you know, being a a cop and, you know, you have to have a little bit of confidence about you too. But it's, you know, you meet her parents and they're like humble, down to earth people too. I mean, there's nothing like spectacular about them in the sense that like, they don't like walk around with like their nose up in the air and exude confidence. That might be what you expect, you know, when you meet Adeline, like this had to have come from somewhere, but then then you meet her parents and they're just like, Happy to go lucky. Proud of their daughters. Like again, like not. They're. I guess you can call them confident people too. But it's. It's not like it came from there. It was taught to them. I just think that they raised four really strong girls that were. They probably taught to be independent and, and to you know speak up for what they want. Um. And they just kind of took it and ran with it. But I, I don't think I don't had one defining moment. I just think it's something that's always been a part of her that. It, it's just who she is. I mean, you, you can't teach what she has. It, you really can't. Um, if you could, I, I'd be, you know, the amount of time I spent around Adeline, I would be teaching it to every single one of my athletes, but it, it can't be taught. I mean, it's just, it, it's inherent and it's, it she just has this intrinsic, you know, thing about her that she just ha- has no doubts ever about anything that she does. I mean, re- wrestling or otherwise, even in her other pursuits, I mean, it's, it's like I said, she's special. Um, it, it's, it's pretty incredible
0: it's John Jones John Jones very much has that too he's always had that um, let's talk a little bit about I mean I call this I referred to it in, in my first 10x talk that the golden age of girl power I'm sorry that use the word girl to refer to women too, since we have so many strong awesome women out there women are taking over you know women are headlining UFCs and you know um, You know, most college graduates now are women, and we're just seeing women in more and more high positions. It's a great time to be a woman. It's long overdue. The opportunities are finally there for women, for young women, for girls, and women's wrestling. We are seeing phenomenal growth. What's the best statistic you have that sort of quantifies that growth? I mean, what's the best stat? How much growth is women's wrestling seeing, and what is fueling it?
2: So, this is what I do with Wrestling like a Girl with the nonprofit I work for. So, you just got me started. Um, I think one of the biggest things is our growth at the high school and youth level. Um, back when Wrestling like a Girl was formed in 2016, uh, there were six states that had sanctioned high school women's wrestling. Uh, You'll get four years later, we're now up to 29 states. So, we've improved by, we have added 23 states in the past four years. Um, which is huge. Um, and we've proven that once a state sanctions high school women's wrestling, the numbers explode exponentially. Um, and it's not just like steady growth where we're seeing like, okay, we're getting a hundred girls in this first year, then it goes down to 50 and then 20 girls the next year, it's it's going the opposite way. The first year we add 300 girls. And then the next year we have 600 more and then 1200 more. So it it's not like regressive growth, it, it's, it's exponential growth every single year, which is so awesome. Um, On the college side of things, we just got NCAA Emerging Sports Status uh, that was voted on back in January, uh, was effective this past August. So we're now, for all intents and purposes, an NCAA Sport. Um, We'll be eligible for a championship once we have 40 NCAA programs, which we just got Um, about a month ago. We hit our 40th program. Um, And nationwide, we're at 87 programs when you combine NCAA, JUCO, and NAIA schools. So again, like back my freshman year of high school, or sorry, my freshman year of college, We ran the national tournament on three or four mats in one day, there was like 200 girls. Um, Two years ago at the national championships, we ran it on six mats with like close to 500 girls over the course of two days. Um, And those are just the girls that can come. I mean, every school can only bring 12 girls, 12 athletes. So figure they still have 12 girls sitting back at home. Our our numbers at the college level are just exploding Um, with programs getting added. um, I mean, multiple programs a month are being announced. Um, we just had our second Division One program add a couple weeks ago, which was Sacred Heart University up in Connecticut. Um, so the college opportunities are, are blowing up like crazy too. Um, there's a huge push in the EIWa and Ivy League schools right now to start adding it large scale across their conference, um, with Princeton leading the way with Chris Ayers, um, Columbia with uh, Tanelli, and over at Harvard. Um, and, and there's a great group leading that for uh, leading that that push too. A good task force. Um, with Kira Berry, Laura Ayers, Jackie Davis, who are doing a lot of great work, um, Coleman Scott down at UNC recently released a, a statement saying, "If any girls want to come train down at UNC, come on, come on down." And so you're seeing these these Division One schools embrace women's wrestling. If they don't have the means to start a Division One varsity program yet, you're getting support from guys like Coleman Scott, who's an Olympic bronze medalist, and John Smith, who served as a women's world team coach a couple years ago, and and Chris Ayers, like I mentioned before, um, and it's. It's gaining so much momentum and that's so awesome to see because for so long it felt like we were kind of like running into a brick wall. Like we kept trying to make progress and then got shut down for one reason or other, whether it was logistic, financial, whatever it may be. And we're finally starting to to chip away at those bricks. Um, It's not just like we're taking like a pencil and tapping at it. It's like we're taking a sledgehammer and just making one big hole. Okay, another big hole and it's going to happen. It's happening right now. Um, and I think once we transition to a full NCAA championship sport in the next couple of years, that that growth is going to start exploding again, even more. So, um, it, it's been a really cool progression to not only watch happen, but to actually be a part of, um, with all the work that I'm doing dress like a girl and, and just to be a part of that movement. Um, I know that we're creating opportunities for girls down the road. I, I always say that I want girls to have more opportunities than I ever thought were imaginable as an athlete myself. And that's, that's definitely happening. And that's it's really cool. I mean, the sport can do so much and our our national team coach always says that we always like to acknowledge all the skills that guys get from the sport of wrestling. I mean, accountability and ownership and autonomy and, you know, leadership skills. Why are we limiting those skills to only half the population? Why are we not trying to give everyone this opportunity to learn these skills? Not just be a part of the great sport, but, but to be able to do things great in their life because of what they experienced during their wrestling career. So I think people are finally starting to get on board with that. You know, the, the good old boys club is kind of starting to phase out a little bit. And there's people that are really just buying into the sport and what it can do. Um, people that used to, to doubt that girls had a place in the sport are getting on board and kind of changing their tune a little bit. So it, it's not like, you know, we're going to wake up tomorrow. We're going to have 15 division one schools, women's wrestling, but, we're getting there and, and there's people trying to actively make that happen um and being very intentional and proactive about it and, and that's what we need i mean more of those people just trying to do great things and um our numbers are going to keep increasing we're going to keep getting more programs and it, it's just going to keep you know keep rolling from here um and ultimately with the state of college wrestling right now i mean two big programs got been dropped in the past couple of months with stanford and fresno state and it's been said time and time again. What's going to save wrestling, both collegially and at the international level, is, is women's wrestling. I mean, it's the reason that we got reinstated in the Olympics, and I think that's part of it too. Is people are realizing our value, not just you know how it benefits the girls, but how it benefits the sport as a whole. And, and, and women's wrestling is the way to do that. So um, we're just going to you keep just, You
0: just took the words out of my mouth because that's where I was going. I was sitting here. I was. I went to the University of Maryland to wrestle. Um, Division one program back in the early 1990s had that uh, aforementioned 27 inch scar, which ended my wrestling career. Broke my truly broke my heart. Truly snatched my identity. Truly, if a bus had run me over, man, if a bus had run me over, in the, the weeks or whatever after that, like I was devastated, right? And so, and back then there was a war on men's wrestling, and it was pretty much only men's wrestling. They were eliminating programs left and right, and that has continued now for several decades. And what's interesting is now with this reemergence of women's wrestling, you wonder if that is going to help the men as well, because now you have a counterpoint, right? You needed you need to try to achieve an equal number of male to female athletes, and if you have a women's program, then it would it, it might make sense that some, some some athletic director at a college might look and say, "Well, we have." 30 women's wrestlers, 40 women's wrestlers, let's have the men as well. It's just easy to do the numbers. And so is that what you, when you say save wrestling, I mean, it's it's obviously helping wrestling, it's re-energizing, it's reinvigorating. Do you see that in your crystal ball, Julia, that as the women go up, that that may equal saving? We know that there's gonna be more women's programs. Do you think that that will have a net effect of actually saving some men's programs that might be potentially axed?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, first and foremost, and without getting the idiot gritty of it, I mean, it helps Title IX stuff. Um, having equal opportunities for men and women, having equal financial opportunities and scholarship money available for men and women helps any athletic department. Um, you can get into that all day. We, we can pull up Nancy Hogshead and, and <laughs> have, her, have her school us all. But uh, um, that's the first thing of it. But the second thing is that we've been seeing a lot of schools that are either adding wrestling or reinstating wrestling and adding both men's and women's programs. Um, I'd say of all the new collegiate programs that were announced in the past couple of years, they've almost exclusively added men's and women's together. Um, there've been a few exceptions where they only added men's. Um, in the case of Northern Michigan, they actually only added women's wrestling, um, without a men's counterpart, but most of these schools are choosing to add both at the same time. Um, one title nine two it's a lot easier to justify adding a sport when you can share facility costs you know you're building one facility for two teams um so financially it makes sense um and especially the case a lot of these smaller schools division two and three and NAI, which is the majority of women's wrestling schools right now they're all enrollment driven so if you can say hey by adding wrestling you can bring in 60 new kids between the men's and women's teams that's super appealing to any one of these small schools that are relying on tuition dollars um and also, you know, one of the pushes we've been making is that wrestling is such an opportunity for socioeconomic mobility. Um, as it stands, men's wrestling is the second highest college sport in percentage of first-generation college students um, at 24%. Football is really? first, I think 25%. Yeah, so it's 1% behind wow. football. Um, wow. And it's right there, barely. And I don't have the exact numbers. Uh, I'm actually sending out a survey in December to get these numbers. but. Um, women's wrestling is at least that 24% number, if not higher, um, which is awesome. Um, and you know, it's, you know, there's so much opportunity there because it it isn't a sport that requires a lot of fancy equipment and the the cost to participate is low. And there are a lot of, you know, not very many barriers to entry and anybody, any size, any shape, any person can do wrestling. You don't need to be super tall, like in volleyball and basketball. You don't need to be, you know, 265 pounds to be a linebacker. I mean, weigh 103 pounds. Cool. We have a spot. You weigh two hundred pounds. Cool, we have a spot. Come on in. Uh, so it's a very inclusive sport too, um, and it's a diverse sport. Again, we're selling these college programs that want more diversity on their campus. Um, of the current USA Wrestling membership base, there is a, a, a you know we, we have the the breakdowns of demographics. So of all the USA Wrestling female card holders, uh, we are forty seven percent non white, um, and that's broken up in Hispanic, uh, African American, Pacific Islander, Asian, all that. But forty seven percent non white is statistically significant I mean it's that, undeniable um, and again I, I would have to believe that the college level it's actually actually significantly higher than that as well um, I know my team at King I have 28 girls um, and 16 of them are not white so we we you know it, it's a super diverse sport which I love as well um, so we're, we're trying to use all these things as the selling points these college programs like look at what you can do just by adding one sport um, it's not a super expensive sport to add. You know, I mean, if, if you already have a men's team, there's no added facility costs, you already have a facility. Um, so it, we have all these selling points and I, I just think that it's going to help these universities. I think it's going to help men's programs because we're showing value in wrestling, even though we're, we're pushing women's wrestling, we're, what we're really pushing is a sport of wrestling and its value and what it can do for people. When we're talking about, you know, first generation college students and socioeconomic mobility and all of these things, um, and it's just, it, you know, obviously I'm biased. I'm super passionate about women's wrestling, if you can't tell, but um, I just think it has so much value. Um, like in the case of Stanford, they just dropped their men's program. They're trying to get it reinstated with the addition of a woman's club to show that like, this is how we can do this right. And this is what wrestling brings to the table at Stanford university. Um, and so it's, I guess ultimately it's gonna save the sport. It's just a matter of getting people to buy in sooner rather than later and before it's too late. Um and that, you know, we just we need to stop selling just to wrestling people. Wrestling has a habit of only trying to sell our sport to our to our pre existing fan base and our pre existing supporters. Yep. And we need to start getting outside the box and start selling yep. our sport you know, to the athletic director that's ever experienced wrestling to the administrator that doesn't have any experience with the sport, um, and bringing in these outside fans and, and women's wrestling has the ability to do that too. Um, you know, men's wrestling is already people are already predisposed to thinking it's just two guys rolling around in spandex, but as a female wrestler, people still don't even know if that's a thing yet. I mean, we all talk about how often we're at airport with a shirt that says, you know, team USA wrestling or King university wrestling. People are like. Oh, is that your boyfriend's sweatshirt? Like, nope, it's mine. I, I wrestle. And they're like, wait, girls wrestle? And they're instantly intrigued. It's not this thought of like, you know, oh, two dudes in Spanish. It's like, whoa, girls wrestle, grappling. And especially with the progression we're seeing a women's MMA and its growing popularity, people are interested in women's wrestling. We're the ones that have the ability to start reaching out beyond the pre existing wrestling community. We can bring in, you know, the everyman and the casual grappling fan or just the general sports fan, whereas men's wrestling kind of has already has some barriers um, to reaching out to those people. So, you know, let's say, okay, okay, come watch women's wrestling, come to the U.S. Open, come to Olympic trials to watch women's wrestling. And then they're going to watch men's wrestling too while they're there. Um, So, you know, we we have the ability to bring people into the sport and get people more invested and show the value. Um, And I just think people are starting to realize that slowly, but it's going to help a lot towards the long-term, not only saving our sport, but helping it progress and grow as a whole as well.
0: Well, Julia, you you are a machine. I say that in a, in a very highly complimentary fashion. Like you just you just drop some gems, and you made me think of your name because I was looking at your name, and I'm like Julia, right? A jewel, a gem. And then Salada is kind of connotes salute is health in like Italian and and Spanish. And so you have like this you know this this gem, this jewel in the name. And I'm like, dang, she's just dropping jewels. She's just dropping jewels left and right. Those are some great. It's a great information, great insights, great perspective. I, I could go on for another hour. I know we're tight on time now, Noah. Noah, who is my right hand man, who does a great job. You've been sitting patiently this whole time. I know you got a question or two in you, so I cannot let, I cannot let Julia go. I could I could talk to you. We'll have you on again, Julia, cause you're a great, you're a great guest and you're, you're just full of um, a great perspective and very timely because this is, you know, This is a new day. This is a new day for women. And ironically, this may be a new day for wrestling. This may be the best thing that's ever happened to wrestling, right? I mean, to just rejuvenate it and and put some new blood in this new era. But, Noah, you, my right hand man, you've been sitting here patiently. Uh, I want to, before we wrap up, I could keep going and going and going. But if you got a question or two in you, and I know you probably do, the stage (laughs) is yours, my friend.
1: Thanks. Um, Well, I, you know, I, it's time, you know, sometimes for some voices to uh, be quiet so that other voices can be heard, and um, you know, the, the uh, you know we're 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 handcuffed by the by our by our own language by saying every man to mean everyone. Um, you know, that's a riff off of uh, you know an old you know go back to your to your high school English days and they had the every man play, which is really about and meant to be about everyone and inclusiveness. So, um, that's, we get a little hang up on that. Um, I, I, as I heard, and, and I took like almost 10 pages of notes, um, single spaced. I'm like, I was writing furiously here to learn from you, um, because, uh, as a pioneer in this sport, um, there's. There's one thing that I want to ask you, and that's um, when you were um, at the Olympic Center and you were in that space mentally, where you were um, dissatisfied and unhappy, um, what in, can you describe the internal resistance uh, you felt uh, for reaching out to your coaches or reaching or speaking up? Because it seems to me like there's a paradox between, um, you know, what you're talking about. Um, uh, you know, you want to project confidence, and you have that outer sense of self, but you're also you have all these internal doubts, and you want to hold them in. Because to me, that's a child. That that's a paradox. You need to have be two things at once. Um, can you speak? Uh, Um, about that topic for me just real quick I I know we're up on time
2: yeah definitely um I think you know there are a lot of things that went into it uh, it was pretty multifaceted and dynamic issue that I was dealing with when I was there um but I, I think one of the biggest things kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier where it's like wrestling is the grind right you're almost like conditioned to be like a robot where like you don't have emotions and you don't have you know any self-doubt and like you're always just taught to be like go 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 and like i think i was kind of stuck in that mindset i mean i was like oh i just need to get tough you know i just need to push through i just need to to get over it um because that's what you've been taught to do for so long when you've been in the sport and i i didn't want it to seem like a point of weakness and i didn't want them to have doubts in me as an athlete because I couldn't handle being spoon fed cafeteria meals on a silver platter every day. Cause it sounds so ridiculous, right? Like I'm, I'm laughing saying it because it, it is, it's ridiculous. Like how can you not handle being given all the sports med you need, all the recovery you need, the best fit, you know, trainers you could ever have, all the facilities you could ever want as, as an elite athlete. Um, what's there to complain about? And I was, that's how I like, was telling myself, I'm like, why am I complaining? Why am I unhappy? Like, I can't let anyone onto this because it's so stupid. You know, I, I should be thrilled right now. Um, and I didn't want to seem ungrateful for the opportunity. I mean, they they asked me to move out there after I graduated from college uh, and I jumped at the opportunity. I didn't want to seem like I, I was ungrateful either. I mean, whether I was living there or not, these were still my national team coaches that, that I had built relationships with and I still have relationships with, of course. Um, and I didn't want them to, to either have doubts in me or to think I was ungrateful. And especially with it being an Olympic year, like, you you need to, you know, have some level of confidence that you can make an Olympic team. Um, and I, I felt felt like if I was doubting my training, that I was going to doubt myself in competition. Um, and so I just kind of try to suppress everything and and just be like, okay, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And in my heart of hearts, I knew everything wasn't fine. Um, so, you know, I I had like talked to them a little bit on the side, like, man, like, you know, that I was frustrated. Or, it was always like wrestling related. It was always like, man, like, my defense hasn't been very good lately or like, you know, I'm struggling with my single leg, but like internal in, in my head, it was so much of bigger issues and technical issues. But that was my way of like trying to start the conversation. Like I'm having problems, like I'm not progressing. And I, I knew it was, it was just my living situation that I felt super claustrophobic living on complex. Um, I always talk about the fact that when I would come back on complex, I had to swipe my ID card seven times to get into my room. Um, to get in my actual room. So I had to swipe it to get on complex, to get into the athlete center, to get into the calf, to get onto my floor, then to get into my room. Like I, I was just like swiping. I'm like, I feel like I'm living in like a prison. Like I just like, life shouldn't be this hard. And like, you know, I had like, you know, yes, like having like a made vacuum or floor every day was nice, but like, it also meant that like, I couldn't do like, like I'm not a super clean person. Like I, I'm clean, but like, I'm like super disorganized like when I come home for a trip and you know, I've been gone for a week I like drop my suitcase on the floor and My stuff just explodes everywhere I'm like I'll get back to this in a couple of days but right now I just seem to like chill um, or you know when I get out you know like I'll, I'll do laundry but then like I won't fold it for like a week like that that's just mm-hmm. how I am like I'm not super organized like I'm like hygienically clean but I'm like a, a mess of a human like I my brains in 15 different places and like I remember one time, like, my suitcase was left on the floor after I came back from a trip. We were at the New York Athletic Club tournament, actually. Um, and I came back, and, like, my suitcase exploded. I like, pulled my pajamas out, pulled out my toothbrush, and, like, brushed my teeth and got in bed. Um, and then slept in the next day until, like, 1 p.m. or something. And, like, I found out that, like, the, the – not monitor, but, like, the person that's in charge of the dorms had, like, taken a picture – my suitcase and like emailed it to me, like, you're being a mess, you need to clean this up. I'm like, dude, I just got back last night. Like it just felt like I was being like treated like I was like 15 years old. I'm like, I am 23 years old, like I do not have time for this. If I want to let my suitcase sit on the floor, I'm gonna let it sit on the floor. Like I it was just like like things like that where I'm like, this is just not how I wanna live. Um so I I I did when I chose to leave. Um, I did end up having a pretty candid conversation with our head national team coach, um, Terry Steiner, and, and just kind of laid it all out there and said, you know, it was nothing against the coaches. It was nothing against, you know, the opportunity. Like it, it was strictly a personal decision. And it was, I mean, it, it just it was the best training situation for me. And some people need that. Some people need to just be focused on wrestling all the time and not have outside distractions and, and just kind of be locked in 24 7. And that's how they operate best. And that's not how I operate best. I operate best having friends outside of the sport and, and being able to go out and see a movie and not have to come back and worry about missing curfew because I saw a 9 p.m. movie and, and you know, it was going to get packed to complex after 11. It was just all these outside stressors that were, like I said before, and it's kind of making me start to resent wrestling, even though it wasn't wrestling that I was resenting, it was my environment. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I, I realized at some point, like, wow, I'm actually depressed. Like I'm like, I'm not just like being dramatic and and using this word lightly. I'm, I'm, I'm actually depressed right now. And I shouldn't feel that way when I'm, you know, around the sport that I love all the time and I I don't want to grow to hate it. So I made the decision to leave. Um, and it was almost immediate as soon as I left and came back to King, um, first day back in the room at King, um, first time hanging out with my friends from college, um, there in the area, it was like, this is how, this is how I function best. These are the people I need. These, this is a support system that I need. Um, and you know, I, I like being part of a team at the Olympic Training Center, like you have a team, but like, especially in Olympic year, everyone's out for themselves. I mean, you have to be selfish, which is fair. I mean, it, it's not wrong, um, but I do best when I have a team around me that wants to see me do well. And, and even now as a coach, um, I'm really grateful that my girls still want to see me do well. It, it would be really easy for them to resent me for like taking time away from them when I go to compete in my own competitions. and. and think that, oh man, that, that hour I just spent drilling with our men's assistant coaches could have been spent working with them. And, and they don't think that way, um, that they, they've like seen me do well. Um, when I compete on that, that card at Penn State a couple months ago, um, they were all watching and texting me during it and they support me too. And that, that's how I thrive. When I had people around me that filled me up and push me, I mean, they push me in the way when I'm doing my lifts and, and you know, it, it's just really cool. Um, and, and I, I'm thankful that I was able to recognize that, um, that I was unhappy there and, and what I needed, uh, before it was too late. So I, it was, it was, it was a pretty dark time. I mean, I, I, I was, <laughs> it was rough, but, uh, I, I, I had that conversation finally I needed to with my head coach and, and I moved out a week later and I've, I've been in a pretty good headspace ever since.
1: It seems like a, a situation like that, um, is common. Yeah, you know, I served in the Marine Corps for four years on active duty and that's, um, you know, that's something where if you speak about that and you dig that up and, and, and show the warning signs and, um, maybe, it, you know, you have your story to help others who are, who fall into that. Um, I know that, um, when I was in the core, uh, same thing, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say it's great food. I mean, it was good food, you know, but it's a different environment being in the core. Um, but, uh, Uh, you know, we had, uh, we didn't have maids, we were the maids or the butlers. Um, So, but that to say, um, you know, that in itself, also, that, that sand is what creates the pearl. And that experience developed you as a coach, I think, uh, to be able to connect and bring your and and have uh, developed strategies to bring your authentic self to your student athletes. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit more about that to, uh, to go into that, because I think that that's probably what makes you and your story very special is, is that you can, you find strength in that. And, uh, now you know ways to, um, uh, identify that in your own, um, in your own student, uh, student athletes. But thank you very much today for, uh, for, for coming on the, on the show. I really enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed hearing these things. Yeah, go ahead. I'm I'm
0: sorry. No, go ahead.
1: That's all yours. It's
0: interesting to hear Julia. Julia suffered to put this in perspective. You talk about the Marine Corps, which is an excellent analogy. And then she's talking about one year or so there at that training facility with all of the restrictions and, and, you know, to put it in perspective on the ultimate fighter, which you watch a lot, And, you know, I used to work for ultimate for the UFC. They're in that house for like six weeks, right? Like six weeks and people go crazy. Like they're athletes. They offer fighters and say, you can be on the ultimate fighter. There are fighters who don't want to go on there partly because they don't want to fight like three fights in six weeks or eight weeks, whatever it is. Right. They don't want to fight whatever that period is eight weeks, whatever. And the other thing is they're thinking I'm going to go stir crazy in a house with these whatever 10, 20 other guys. Heck no. So, you know, for her to do one year, it is a big mental challenge. And it makes me think, and we're, I'm, we're not going to, we're, we're, we're done here, but it just makes me think you and I have had this discussion before Noah, about when is it time to get tougher? And when is it time to make a change? Cause it's not always time. Every situation is not always time to get tougher. Sometimes we have to know sometimes wisdom, is knowing when to quit at something, at a particular thing, not be a quitter in life, but knowing when it's time to quit a toxic relationship, when it's time to leave a certain situation. And those of us who value toughness and never quit, we're so stubborn, these are hard situations because our answer to everything is always like rock, scissors, paper. What's the solution for a wrestler? Rock, rock, rock against everything, like rock, rock. And there's a time where rock is not the right answer. like. Rock is beautiful, but rocks, not the right answer. Sometimes you got to throw a little bit of paper and paper is the, is the wind, right? And it's knowing when is there a time to quit the situation? When is there time for change? And that takes bravery and it takes wisdom to know, to know yourself and know, okay, the answer to this one is not always just get tougher. There are situations in life that's us as wrestlers can be very hard for us to learn that, that being tougher, more rhino skin, it's not always the answer, and it's not always the solution. So, anyway, I love that Julia mentioned that Noah. Great question, Julia. We'll have you on again. We, you know, with just a great interview. We didn't have. I didn't want to jinx us. We went through without technical difficulties. Our persistence paid off. So, yeah, um, happy, happy soon to be. Go ahead, Noah. You wanted to say something? Final thought? Oh yeah,
1: no. I the last thing I would say about that. You know, when we talk about our the gifts of imperfection. You know, yeah. of not being perfect like that. You know, the Japanese have an they have an artistic aesthetic about that, and they call it wabi sabi, and that's the intentional. They t- they'll take a beautiful vase and they will create it with an intentional flaw, because that's how we are as humans and athletes. We have all have our in- a little flaw in there that makes that makes us unique, and when we own that, and we get close to that. That makes us all connected, you know. It makes beautiful. us all every man. That's beautiful. Thank you very much.
0: Happy, Happy holidays much. to both of you and Noah. I'll be seeing you again soon, Julia. You're always welcome on on our uh, podcast. We'll mm-hmm. we'll have this up. We'll send you a link and and just great great information. I told you, man. Julia Julia is an A-lister. We're gonna have we're gonna have bigger names, but Julia's uh, just as good of an interview as anybody. So we really appreciate it, Julia.
2: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you guys.
1: Thank you Happy very much. holidays, guys. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Everyman BJJ. We typically on Sundays, 1.30 uh, Pacific, 4.30 uh, Eastern. And thank you again. Happy holidays, everyone. See you again soon.
0: Bye. Bye, guys.
2: Yeah.
0: That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com.